Hello, listeners. This is producer John. Open Pike Night is going to be at Trek Long Island 2024. From May 31st to June 2nd, Cameron and myself, producer John, will be in the Big Apple living long and prospering. We'll be hosting a panel. We'll be giving out stickers. We will have our microphones. Be sure to follow Open Pike on social media and subscribe to openpike.substack.com because we also will be giving away some Trek Long Island weekend passes. Trek Long Island is May 31st to June 2nd at the Hyatt Regency in Hopog, New York. Hey, y'all. This is Davey Perez. You are listening to Open Pike Night. Hey, guys, if we pull this off, it's officially the Open Pike Maneuver. Is this thing on? Hello, hello. Welcome to Open Pike Night. I'm your host, John T. Bolds, here tonight with some amazing guests on stage and in the studio to have a conversation with a man who helped bring a long-running punchline in Star Trek to the modern age with terrifying results. We have steeled ourselves for this night, brushed off our Remembrance Day pins, packed out our cold weather gear, rolled for initiative, dexterity, and fun. We've enlisted the Winchester boys and given them the finest red uniform shirts we could find. And of course, we're glad as always to welcome our friend Buckley. And our valued guests on the Open Pike Night stage have come to show their amazing support. Joining me today are my co-hosts. The man who would shove either of his co-hosts to safety, unless there was a guest as awesome as tonight's. Host of Sudden But Inevitable, Jesse. That's correct, Producer John, and because it is Monday... The eyes that are both dead and hungry at the same time are mine. Okay, Garfield. And the man who is all too familiar with the consequences of Gornspit and keeps the finest bleach wipes handy at all times. Host of Green Shirt, a newbie streck through TNG, Cameron. The podcasting that is in my thoughts, I let into my heart. (laughs) Too much. Tonight, we have an amazing special guest joining Open Pike Night for the first time. A man who knows how to take a slow, rubber-mask-wearing brute and turn it into the most terrifying Star Trek enemy since the Borg. A man who is all too familiar with stepping into an established property rife with the weight of fantasy relationships created by audiences. A man who isn't afraid to let the bodies hit the floor or let the hammer fall. Writer of Memento Mori and all those who wander. Davey Perez, welcome to Open Pike Night. Hola! Thanks for having me. That's quite an intro, guys. I I, uh, I, I, I feel like I, I'd like to listen to this guy talk. Who's this guy you're talking about, Davey? He seems so prolific. Right? He sounds pretty cool, right? He does. And we're uh, extremely excited to have you on. So the way our, our interviews usually go, we split up each of the sections by, by different hosts. And Cameron will start us off tonight with some questions. Oh, it seems I won the initiative role. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. So, Davey, it seems that you have found your purpose in life, perhaps, which is to tell amazing television stories. So how how did that come to be? What what was the germinating seed that got you interested in writing? 
Oh boy, you gotta go for the easy questions first. You know, um, chronologically. I, I, you know, it's always been in me. I, you know, as a, as a little boy, I was always, uh, I was a performer. I was making people laugh. And uh, in high school, I was in all the drama clubs. Even though I was kicked out of four high schools, and um, oh, I, I began as a as a background actor. Um, I was an extra on on shows like 90210 and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Mm. And, um, I thought I was going to be an actor, but then uh, I just uh, became very conscious of uh, not wanting to be inside a story and wanting to be on the other side of it. And it was um, actually I was teaching acting to these uh, kids in East L.A. and writing uh, ad- adaptations of plays and musicals for them to perform. And that was really the first time that I started to kind of write um, things that weren't song lyrics, because I I was also a musician and, and seeing it perform and realizing that I could create something and hand it over to other people to have fun with and kind of be outside of it and watch it. That was literally the the moment I was like, Oh shit, I'm a writer. Uh, (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) and, and uh, it still took a journey to get to where I'm at, but it was kind of having that clarity to be like, great. I know what I want to do. Now I got to figure out how I'm going to do it. You, know? you said you were Actually. writing adaptations. What were you adapting? Well, like it, the kids would watch Aladdin and they'd want to do like a, a 20 minute version of a Disney musical and, uh, you know, basically sing some songs and have like the, the loosest of story connections <laughs> or like, uh, you know, bye bye birdie of all things, you know, just, you know, taking a two hour movie that the kids wanted to sing songs from and do like a 20 minute performance for their parents. And so it was literally like, you know, just getting the three scenes that make the mm-hmm. most sense <laughs> yeah. for like an eight year old to do and then getting to sing the song. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, uh, yeah, we'll we'll continue on that journey, but let's take a moment because we here at Open Pike Night are kind of obsessed with the fact that the Strange New Worlds writers room had a D&D uh, group that I hear you were the DM for. So um how did you get interested in Dungeons and Dragons and what can you tell us about this campaign? Oh man. So, I mean, I got interested in D and D back in the early, early satanic panic days. Right. You know, <laughs> oh, uh, heck yeah. Yeah. My, my brother was, was playing with some friends and then I, you know, I got to play one campaign with him and then we weren't allowed to play. And then in high school, I had a buddy who we were playing AD and D and calculating Thaco and doing all of that. Um, <laughs> and that was like, what I would do on the weekends, you know, I, I'd sneak out of the house to go to this older friend's house and, you know, play, uh, and then play magic in between setups because we'd get new players in all the time and they'd, they'd have to create characters. And, and like some of us would be like, Oh, we got to wait a half hour. This friend who worked at a, a comic book store was like, you guys got to play this new game called magic the gathering. <laughs> and, um, so it was all, it's all goes, goes back to the nineties. And, um, I, you know, started playing again, actually at Supernatural. Okay. Uh, Supernatural, uh, we, we had a campaign that went for a while and I was DMing there doing Lost Minds of Fandelver into um, The Curse of Strahd. And uh, for, for Strange New World, because uh, we were all online, I was trying to do the, the Roll20 thing. And um, it was hard. It was hard to get everyone at the same time. We did a little bit of Lost Minds of Fandelver and I got everyone into the uh, one of the caves, and that's where they still are till this day. They're, they're, they're sort of. <laughs> yeah. I got had a I had a second kid, and oh. you know, uh, 
the the second wave of pandemic happened and and the game has been in 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 that stasis ever since so there's no season two quest i mean uh, maybe i don't know we did talk about actually nitra and i did talk about the you know kindling the the the, you know when, when i figure out you know the the night that i could not play magic not watch the kid and not write (laughs) maybe i could do that (laughs) fit it in (laughs) <laughs> no magic until you finish your Star Trek. And no yeah, exactly. D&D right. Until you finish you your magic. You have to watch these. Right, exactly. yeah. You have to watch these episodes of Star Trek before you go be a nerd and play D and D. Man, your life sounds hard, Davey. I gotta say, it's rough. It it's really rough, rough man. guys. I'm surrounded by toys and and board games, and I gotta t- I gotta watch old sci fi. It's really hard. Well, that's that's really the life. Right, new sci fi. Yeah, but that's the life of a parent of young kids. You're surrounded by all these games that you're like. Well, we'll play them someday when you're older. Oh, I got like, uh, uh, what is that? Mansions of Madness somewhere, which oh. I, I loved. Ooh. I played it twice at a friend's and I loved it. Got it as a gift and I have not been able to play it. Uh, oh. Yeah, that's a great game too. Yeah, my, my board game shelf is full of those. Like, we got them. We got it. Finally, we'll play it one day. Yeah. Well, so how did you get from um, teaching uh, kids adaptations of, of Disney movies to uh, writing for television? Where how'd that journey go? I mean, you know, it was a hustle. You know, I, I um, was working um, at set PA jobs at the time and working mm-hmm. in production and uh, would go actually did go back to community college to to take camera classes because uh, working on sets, I wanted to know like the conversations that were happening around me. So I, I took a bunch of cinematography classes and uh, writing classes and everything. And I, I worked at a place called the National Association of Latino Independent Producers. And um, I was a summer intern. That was supposed to just be a summer intern for them. And like really like within two weeks, they were like, you have a lot of set production experience. I'm like, yes, I do. <laughs> and so then they sort of offered me a job and man, I had to quit community college, but I started working at a place that you know was was sending me to uh, New Mexico and Tucson to actually film people's short films and to like. So I was then doing like production work as a production manager, but it was um, far from the creative work, right? Doing production stuff. So from that, I met uh, a man that changed my life uh, at ABC. Uh, uh, his name was Tim McNeil, and he's, I think, now the, the SVP of Talent Development and Inclusion, if that's what they still call that department. And uh, he, uh, I met him, and he sort of asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, look, I don't tell people this, but the truth is, is I want to be creative. I want to write and direct. And he says, okay, well, everyone says that. And I said, that's true. <laughs> says uh, what are you what are you doing about it are you writing or are you directing and i said no i just don't have i you know I, and i actually got he, he sort of challenged me to be honest with him because i think when you meet someone like that you're always like i think abc is great and i would be really neat here <laughs> and he said hey look you know you seem like a cool young man but you've just told me how great the company i work for is and i don't know anything about you and I was like, oh, this guy's calling me out. And so I just said, here's the deal. Like, I come from East L.A. And my dad's uh, from Mexico. I dropped out of four schools. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I have a passion. I have a story. I've, I've struggled. But I'm going to do it. And I don't, you know, if, if you don't help me out, that's fine. I'm going to figure it out. And he goes, okay, that guy I can help. I can help that guy. And he sort of 
helped me to realize that, that, that you know, you just got to present people the truth and not be embarrassed by where you come from or what you're doing. And, uh, and, and more often than not, someone might lend you a hand and help you out. And, uh, you know, even meeting him, he was like, great, I can point you in some directions, but I'm not going to, you know, you're going to have to fight for your own opportunity. And uh, I got into a program there at ABC called the Associates Program. And it was like a PA. It was a glorified PA in different departments. Uh, I got to work in creative development. I was like 30, I think, 32. So I was like the oldest PA. Uh, and I was answering phones and uh, getting you know people coffee and making copies. But I was reading television scripts. I was, you know, uh, ironically, Ugly Betty was on the air at the time. So I was probably reading Henry's scripts, uh, you know, without being aware of, of uh, you know, that I'd work with him someday. And um, that was the beginning of my writing career because that gave me access to uh, production people who, who then hired writers PAs. And I ended up with a writers PA job. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was still a long journey. Like um, I started applying to the ABC writing program which Tim also, um, you know, looked, looked over, but it took me five or six years of applying and not getting in. And like the first three years, we didn't even get an interview, didn't even get past the first round. And he kept telling me, I said, look, he, like he said, it goes, it's you that's going to get in. And it's like, I can tell you about these programs. I can tell you about the stuff that you need to be doing, but I'm not going to like, you know, make a phone call for you. Cause that's not how this works. Uh, and so, um, you know, got to a place where, uh, you know, in 2013, I was uh, working for Noah Hawley as his assistant on Fargo, which was its own journey to get to there and um, got into some writing workshops. And I wasn't going to apply to the Disney ABC writing program that year because I thought, well, I'm working for a showrunner now. I'll I'll put some time in here. And this is kind of my path. And, um, I did write a once upon a time spec and uh, I had a mentor at ABC. One of the executives I used to get coffee for was kind of being a mentor, Sarah Hughes. And she read the, the, the draft of the once upon a time. And she's also, she, she called me and she's like, I cover this show and this read like an episode, like what are you doing? Apply to the program. Like, kind of, don't be stupid. And so I, I, um, I, and it, it was funny cause I was, I was not applying out of my own kind of jadedness, right. At a certain point you just give up. And, and uh, you know, encouraged to actually apply to the program again and going, oh, they're not going to, you know, they're not going to select me. And um, and that was the year that I got through the interview round and I, I, I got through the, the final selection. And um, it, 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 it was amazing, you know, because I was I was working for Noah Warren Littlefield, who was a producer on the show. Um, and, you know, if you know anything about television is, is a legend in television. And I wasn't telling the people I worked for that I was like a finalist because I just felt like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want them. And then I finally kind of piped up. I said, I'm a finalist to the ABC writing program. It's stressing me out. And I'm sorry if I'm off my game. And Warren's like, oh, I know the, the woman who runs the program over there. And I was like, yeah. He goes, do you want me to make a call? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was already a finalist. You know, I was already in like the top 20 or whatever they were selecting. I'm sure. His call was very helpful, but it was amazing that someone of that caliber would call on behalf of an assistant. And and uh, I would never. I'll, it was funny because I I remember telling him like, but you don't even know if I'm a good writer because he never read. And he looked at me. He goes, "I've worked with you, and I know you enough to know you're a good writer." 
and I, and it sort of stayed with me that I was like, oh, there's there's an element to this that is beyond the page, you know, um, and mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and I like to think that he knows a little something about it. So um, he, he made that call, and Janine said she already had me on her short list uh, either way, but it just all worked out that I got into the, that's essentially my big break was getting into the ABC writing program, and um, uh, you know, off of that getting into uh, the American Crime Room, which Look, everything is connected if you really look at my journey because I walked into a producer's meet on American Crime and there was Michael McDonald and I was like, hey, I used to get you coffee in the <laughs> weekly meeting back in the old ABC days when I was a, a, a PA. And he's like, holy shit, you're that really old PA. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and we hit it off. And, and uh, you know, I, I haven't talked to him in a, in a bit, but, but I love Michael and I loved working with him on that show. And, uh, you know, it was... Uh, him and I instantly had a, a, a great connection, and then he said, "He's like, you know, you, you you need to meet John Ridley. I think John John would really like you." And you know, I, and I did meet John, and apparently liked me enough to hire me on on the, that first season and bring me back for season two. Man, so s- speaking of beyond the page, this is a little bit reverse meta, and you know, weird because normally I wait till the end to do my section, but Hammer does state that an engineer's two most important tools are his mind and his hands. What would you say are a writer's two most important tools? Wow, that's that's a good one. Um, I would say um, the most important tool is your perspective, uh, your point of view on life. You know, it's sort of the the secret sauce that you can bring because uh, regardless of your experience, no one's had your exact journey in life. And so you can always bring that to the table. Um, and the other tool I would say is other people, you know, and, and I mean that in every aspect because a lot of my story comes from other people's experiences. I watch a lot of documentaries, read a lot of biopics, uh, and also dialogue. Sometimes I just listen to uh, people talk and I'll be like, that was an interesting way of saying that. I'd love to turn that into a, a line of dialogue. And I do. Uh, I still things people say in the room uh, or, or things people say to me, I'll say, that's funny. And you know, I'll reuse it. Your individual point of view and perspective and, and the power to listen, I guess, is that second one would be, you know, listen to the people around you, listen to, to yourself and, and listen to the world that you live in. I think those are both really good answers. And I think to have them right at the forefront might indicate, you know, their where where they go on that list. So thank you. I think that's I think that's very good. Uh we do uh I think have a question from our friend Meg, if you'd like to cue that up, producer John. Yep. Here we go. Hi, this is Meg, a big fan of yours, Davies, and big fan of Supernatural. And I was just wondering, what was it like to join a show that was so established twelve seasons in with such a fervent fan base? And do you have a favorite episode that you wrote um, and a favorite episode that you were a part of or weren't a part of? And were you a fan of the show before you started working for it? Thanks. Out of the gate with a supernatural question. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's a great one, Meg. Uh, It was like a three-parter. I love it. Um, How was it to join such an established show? I I won't lie. It was slightly daunting, um, but it was also... Uh, kind of reassuring because I knew 
that they had done it and they will continue to do it. So, so job security wise, I figured, okay, I'm here for a bit. And, um, you know, all I have to figure out is how to have fun here. I don't have to invent the wheel or reinvent the wheel. Um, so that, that part was cool. The part of like the canon and, you know, the characters, and I don't want to repeat story arcs, all of that was sort of living in me. Um, but thanks to the fandom actually, because, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, like I did a really big dive into the Wikipedia pages, the, the Reddit pages, both dark and not so dark. Like I was reading like to the toxic feedback as well as the positive feedback and going, holy shit, there's a lot here. Um, and I, it was sort of a, a nice uh, primer to what I was getting into. And I still went in like thinking, OK, I'm going to stay on the positive, try to just tell some really interesting stories. My favorite episode that I wrote, God, it's so hard because I love different elements of each one. I love the the fun uh, cowboy stuff in Tombstone. Um, I, you know, um, Stuck in the Middle with You is probably like, probably one of my favorites because it was a season one and it was the first time where I was like, I do something crazy. Could I just write like a Tarantino movie as an episode? And Andrew dad was like, yeah, absolutely. And then Bob Singer was like, what is this about? And, and uh, we were like, it's, it's like the killing. It's like Stanley Kubrick's the killing. He's like, well, I like Stanley Kubrick. And so we sort of like got to, got to do this, uh, you know, form breaking episode, which was, you know, for me and as a first year on the show to be like, I'm going to break format right away. I thought that was really cool that they let me do that. And I was able to do it. All I mean the 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 Halloween episode I did uh, in season fifteen I think it was uh, that I mean I'm born on Halloween so that's got a sweet spot I got to oh. create my own movie monster and uh, we did a fake trailer with that and that was we just had a lot of fun with that universe. Did you have a favorite episode outside of the ones you did? Uh, no, those suck. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, red meat has always red meat and baby were always the two that I would like go back to. And, 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 um, for me, I was like, this is when they were doing something interesting with the characters. Like baby is all the perspective of the car, but they do a really good job in, on, on focusing on the boys and their relationship. And red meat was such a, a an immediate problem for them to try and solve. It was like, you know, he was bitten uh, by a werewolf and, and, and he was like bleeding out. And so that, you know, the, the, the immediate problem that also reveals character uh, depth, you know, that's, that's, I love that stuff. That's like my wheelhouse. So those are the kind of the two I would always watch. So it sounds like supernatural was a pretty good primer for then star Trek. You're entering this bigger universe. You've got a lot of canon to deal with. You've got a lot of both positive and toxic fan uh, feedback. Mm -hmm. uh, what were some of the big lessons you learned from supernatural you were able to apply to your strange new world's time? Um, you know, there's so many, uh, just have fun with it. Uh, just uh, focus on the story and the characters. And like the big secret or not so secret is that I knew way more about star Trek than I did about supernatural. I, I, grew up watching the original series with my dad was watching TNG as it aired as a young man dating myself. Um, and, and, you know, I, I watched a good chunk of DS nine and then fell off around that time. Cause you know, um, uh, teenage years and bands and, you know, all that <laughs> nightlife stuff work had to be cool. Um, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Can't, even though I'd still be like, Oh, well, did I miss a warp episode? Damn it. Um, <laughs> But, you know, you know, the practical lessons, too, as far as like, you know, Supernatural is a procedural show 
that has a monster of the week, that has a problem of the week, and it has these characters that you know and love that you want to learn a little bit about, but you ultimately just want to see these characters that you know and love solve the problem, you know? And so that is what sort of I kind of focus on, as e- at least in the writing. It's like, what is the problem? What are they trying to solve? Focus on that. And then in them solving this problem, we will learn a little bit, hopefully, about the characters and, and get to, to reveal some aspects about them that we love. So those problems and often the problem solving in Supernatural were very supernatural. They were magical based. And in Star Trek, they at least tried to throw some technology and science into it. Was there any sort of adjustment period to that, to not just being able to go like, oh, well, it's magic? I'm actually uh, someone who grew up with a, with a faith-based background, raised Catholic, was perfect for supernatural because uh, even though it's sort of magic and fantasy, there's, there's some sort of mythos that's based on, on either, you know, Judeo-Catholic uh, belief or, you know, Greek-Roman belief or whatever we would kind of go into fairy tales, like some sort of, you know, uh, Gaelic thing. So there was always something there with rules. And so in sci-fi, the rules are science. And so I kind of just, uh, I don't know a lot about science, but if I could uh, look up a Wikipedia page or Google it or call Aaron McDonald, uh, who's our science advisor, like in Memento Mori, there's a lot of science in there. I remember we had a lot of conversations where it was like, okay, we want to put them somewhere that feels like they're underwater, but they're not. And what would be really dense like that? And, and um, you know, we were like it's not a nebula because we've done that and she, she sort of turned us on to the idea of a brown dwarf and then i looked at brown dwarfs and you know how things would actually work and um got all the the coriolis forces and then i would sometimes put in like fake like i would put in like what i think the science is and then she would read it and she's like it doesn't actually work that way and i'm like great what's the real science um i haven't done the cop out which i know we are allowed to do and some people have done where you put insert science nonsense here. <laughs> um, maybe I did actually, I, I take that back. I do. I did put uh, science that I'll figure out later in one, one little area. <laughs> you don't have to do it. I'll do it, but it does need done. <laughs> but it's there. Like it's a placeholder, but I think the more you can ground your idea and your story in some sort of rules, some sort of reality, then you can kind of give us enough to warp it and then make it, you know, you believe that they could survive surfing a uh, black hole if you explain to us the science of the black hole and they're like well they know black holes so they must know that they can surf them and as long yeah. as Eric Ortegas was at the helm yeah Eric Ortegas man she's too bad I find that so interesting because Pike literally says to Laon in this episode the best miracles are based in truth right so it's like you're using that same philosophy to write magic or science depending on what's there that's a really cool parallel, Davey. There's no question here. That's just cool. <laughs> oh, thanks, man. I appreciate that. Sometimes I get it right. So we'll uh, transition from the start of your career and get into entering Star Trek, not specifically your Strange New Worlds episodes, but stepping into just the Star Trek cultural phenomenon and, and Cornerstone. Did you have any moments before you started writing with the show for the show after you'd been hired where you thought, okay... Every word I write is going to be analyzed now and for decades in the future and <laughs> possibly after I'm dead, people will still be watching these episodes and obsessing over them. 
I mean, in, in the abstract, I kind of knew that going in because, you know, like, like we've said, Supernatural was a great primer for that. You know, the the idea that you make canon and to some people that canon is uh, very important and it, mean, it means something to them and you, you want to be careful with that and you want to respect that. But I think on this show in particular, I think I really felt it when the Gorn episode came out and I knew people were going to react the, the way they, that they were. Mm. I had an interview where I tried to over-explain my process, I think. A snippet of what of my explanation got, got received out of context. <laughs> and I think that was a moment where I was like, oh, shit, I got to be super extra dynamically careful <laughs> with every minute thing I say because even the context of it has to be very clear. Because if the context is not clear, then other people will attribute their own context and meaning and i don't want them to ever attribute something negative or something that they receive as as wrong especially if that's not my intention because uh the the thing that i that i've said and, and will continue to say is my goal is that everyone watching it has a positive experience and that it doesn't undo anything that they believe that that is supposed to come after but maybe it'll inform it in some way or give you a different angle or like i didn't think of it that way like i want it to still be possible for people to hold on to their version you know mm. yeah Except okay. for except for Hammer fans, no, yeah, yeah, Hammer dead. So let's be real. Hammer got, but everybody else, yeah, um, yeah, he, he gone. Yeah, don't worry, there will be more conversation about that later on. <laughs> so we've been told by some of our guests, some of the actors, um, that actors use specific words to find their character's voice. Um, like, what process do you use when you're having to write in so many different voices? for for a series like this oh that's interesting um i i kind of just imagine the them having you know it's it's kind of hard. that's a hard question because i've gotten to the point where i i know the story that i need to tell but as far as what the characters sound like and what they might say i kind of just trust as i'm writing it that that it, i'm watching it yeah i kind of kind of step outside of it and i i just put the characters that i know or think i know or hope i know together and and see how they would say something and a, a lot of times the first draft sounds a lot like the way i would say it mm. and then i have to go back and be like well how would they really say it uh and then you luckily well there's a writer's room and and, and we have executive producers who who also will read something and be like mostly good here this doesn't sound like umbenga or here you know lawn sounds actually like ohura for a reason and you're like oh yeah that that is a little too, you know, further. Uh, but but it is like just feeling that you let the characters kind of play out the scene. Um, and in my head, they're so alive, you know, uh, it, it, and it's so great. I, uh, and then there's the, the performers themselves who are so awesome. And, you know, it's like there's you give them a scene and, and uh, sometimes they'll be like, hey, I, I feel like I might say it this way. And you're like, oh okay, why are you feeling you might say it that way? And then you have a conversation and then you find like, as long as the way you say it doesn't undo the point of the scene, I think it's okay. Uh, but there's like a difference between my version of Pike, Anton's version of Pike, you know, uh, Pike's version of Pike, <laughs> you know, and so we've got to find the right one, you know. It must be significantly different writing for season two than season one now that you've seen that go through the performer filter and everything. Yeah. I mean, look, in season one, you just 
you write it down and you're like, I hope to say it. I hope it's fine. I hope it's great. And they, you know, I wasn't on set. I was uh, on a Zoom uh, monitor overseeing episode four and was a lot of like texting, answering, you know, and getting a call and having to work it out. You know, for the most part, everyone was just excited and just doing the thing. And then I was on set uh, for all those who wander. I was there for prep and shooting and getting to work in person with everybody and being on set. And um, that was awesome. I got to take my picture holding the phaser rifle and, um, (laughs) and then getting to see everyone's process uh, was, was very helpful because in season two writing certain things, I got a a better understanding to, Oh, you know, I'm going to get ahead of this thing that I think they might, you know, they've explained to me how they perceive things or how they receive certain things. So this, this is helpful in writing this, that I'll just kind of get there. Uh, you, you don't, uh, you collaborate, right? You don't want to dictate, you don't want to mandate, and you also don't want to sort of uh, give up your own voice in a thing. So you find a nice way to collaborate. You told us about watching TOS growing up and TNG, DS9, that's like your trajectory directly follows mine with Trek. So I fully get where you're coming <laughs> from. I'm like, yeah, TNG, DS9, and then it just kind of tapered a little bit. I, I, Voyager is awesome. Look, I, I go back and like, I, you know, especially now, like, you know, homework is watching old Trek. And so I love going back and being like, wow, they were doing this back then. Shit. I didn't see this live. This is a great episode, you know? <laughs> yeah. So what, uh, um, like TNG, what, what, what are your sta- like standout episodes, your favorites and, and um, characters? I mean, the, the, the first one where Q shows up, right. You know, uh, far point or something. The first like one. That. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's the pilot, right? Um, gotta love that. Gotta love, you know, uh, crazy Riker, you know, um, <laughs> when he's yep. going nuts in the, in the psych ward. <laughs> um don't worry uh, cam you'll get there <laughs> <laughs> there's um there's the prime directive one where uh, they think put the picard is a god um, <sighs> you know that's 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 a good one you know i'd love the just the sci-fi tropey ones but they also have you know darmok is like come yes. on everyone loves that gotta love yes. uh you know uh so I, you know, I love a lot of the people, the the, the low hanging fruit ones, uh, but I just, you know, I also love the the sci fi, um, you know, mission of the week that they go on. Uh, uh, what's the one where Data to relocate a uh, he has to relocate a colony because uh, they're they're going to um, get eradicated. I think there's like a race who's like this colony shouldn't be here, and if they don't move, oh, yeah, we're going to yeah, yeah. eradicate yep. them. Yeah, and and uh, that's a great one because it's a good sci-fi problem, and it's like trying to you know how do you argue with a uh, an alien race that doesn't have your same uh, reality? Yeah, and what lengths will you go to to save people from themselves? And yeah. right, and I think yeah. that it ends up being like a legal loophole that Picard yeah, finds yeah. is the answer. To say how how corporate law can save your <laughs> yeah, uh, how, colonial interests. How, how, Corporate law can save colonialism. That's a great lesson. I think that's the one where we uh, that started the trend of Picard getting hung up on and him not liking it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It goes on and on, you know, data proving, measure of a man, you know, like proving if uh, yeah. does he have rights, you yeah. know, uh, four lights, you know, I can't, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> my heart. Excellent. 
Yeah. And and DS9 um like you, you said, did I miss a Worf episode? Is Worf one of your, yeah. one of your good well, the, the Yeah, I love Worf. I just love because he's, you know, uh, he, he's a man who's trying to struggle with his culture in a way that a lot of Latinos do. And I know a lot of the black community have glommed onto, you know, him as well, rightly so. And he just, he's like a guy who's trying to make it in a Starfleet world where he has this background that other people don't understand. And he's trying to struggle with the Klingon side, you know, and, and he's code switches, you know, and that's such mm-hmm. a, a person of color thing. Um, but he's also just a funny character, right? He's just, uh, you know, his bachelor party on DS9 is is like, <laughs> you know, probably one of my favorite I, it's episodes. It's one of my there. favorite yeah. episodes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we know you can't tell us what you know about season two, but how much do you know about season two? How much do I know about season two? I know how it begins and I know how it ends. And I know <laughs> and have watched every single episode. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> who, who did you kill? That's what we want to know. Yeah. Who did you <laughs> well, knock off this time? You know, that's a very good question. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, there potentially may be a death. Um, it may not be one of our uh, people or there may be nobody that dies. I mean, a death would be light for you. So, you know, yeah. just one. Yeah. <laughs> we did the math. You killed the most people in, in season one. That tracks. That tracks. Um, yeah. Characters uh, of the week may die. How about that? Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. Anybody who is blue, we just assume is, is ready yeah, to go. On the, yeah. Like all of your ensigns were wearing blue uniforms, Hemmer, Buckley. I mean, like it was kind of a I, thing. I got you got one of each in all those who wanders. You, you got a you got a gold shirt, a blue shirt, and a red shirt. Mm-hmm, uh, it was kind of a uh, everyone's on the table and there's no one safe. You know? <laughs> and a blue guy in a red shirt. So it's a, a blue guy in a red shirt. Yeah. Yep. Excellent combo. Yeah. That's a purple. <laughs> So what, uh, for season one, or just for, for Strange New Worlds in general, what has been your favorite fan reaction? Oh, wow. Um, I think the love that Memento Mori got as an episode. I was not expecting that. That's the outpouring of uh, positive people saying it was the best Trek in X amount or the you know their favorite. And I thought that that's pretty big things to be measured up against. And even if it's in the top 10 for people, uh, you know, I, I co-wrote that one and the room broke that one. And it was a concept that uh, I was lucky enough to be able to shepherd and, and uh, be a part of. And, and then it was directed by Dan Liu who directed the shit out of it. And, and every performer really brought their a game. So it, it was like a combination and then it was cut together. Well, and Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very overwhelming and, and humbling and it feels good. Yeah. I mean, we were watching him each episode at a time and engaging with our community and it really felt like episode four, like those who were still on the fence about strange new worlds. That was the one where they're like, Nope, I'm in. This is a show yeah. now. So I was wondering if they had uh, like, awesome. you know, they didn't plan, like we're going to have a big cinematic one, like episode four to really kind of get those stragglers. It was just all those great things coming together. Like you said, well, yeah, and it was like a classic Trek episode, and it was sort of, you know, Henry loves a good space battle, and he's like, I mm-hmm. want a good space battle, and I was, I love, you know, Balance of Terror, uh, and I was like, if we get to do that and and do our, our send-up of it, I really wanted to do that one, and, uh, you know, it's funny, because he, he very, 
very uh you know repeatedly kept telling me four is really good man you should be proud four is really good really and I, and, and I was like thanks and he's like no it's really good you should be proud and would text me and I'm like, I don't know what is this. It's don't, like, Start I don't know what worrying. this means. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I was like, we should all be proud, you know. And he's like, no, but you know, he, he sort of gave me a little bit of a, a, a in a good way, was sort of telling me, you know, you, you know, you both did a good job with that script. And um, I, I, when it aired, was just sort of like when I saw it the first time, even without VFX, I went, shit, that's actually pretty good. Yeah. Uh, and you, and you rarely say that for a director's cut. You yeah. really do. Uh, we, we all hate everything when we see it for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, Akiva, when he hired me, was like, um, you know, what are some of your favorite episodes before, you know, this during the, the interview that we did on online on, on a Zoom call. I go, well, I love uh, Arena and I love Balance of Terror. And he's like, funny thing. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> he, he's like, uh, we're bringing back the Gorn. And I was like, what? Uh, I got to work on this show. You're like, at that point, I'm like, I'll pay you. Um, and uh, uh, I was lucky to get the job. And so to to have the honor of writing that episode where we get to introduce our our sort of bad for the season, uh, it was awesome. You know, I think it cuts across Trek generations, right? Because like yeah, you were saying, yeah. it has so much classic Trek in it, but it looks so new and good that it just, it really is a Trek for every generation of Trek fans, I think. And I am, I'm so glad that we get to hear some of this process. I am, oh, I am wrapped oh, to the screen. <laughs> and you, you know, you hit on, you hit on something kind of cool though, which I think is with that first season, like it, it, depending on the fan you talk to, they'll have a different number one. Like we did a good job of like yes. running the gamut of this is what Trek does when Trek does a fantasy episode. And some people are like, I love the fantasy episodes. And so Elysian Kingdom is going to be their number one. And mm-hmm. that's rightly so, their number one. <laughs> and uh, other people are like, I love straight ahead sci-fi. And so, uh, or, you know, I love when monsters pop out of people. Um, and so, uh, and, I, and I love that, that this fan base is so diverse that we could all have number ones, but we can all celebrate that someone else's number one will also be different. And that's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, uh, and if Memento Mori is a, a lot of number, number ones list, then, then that's pretty, pretty chevron pretty yeah. cool too so what jesse is saying is hey man number four is pretty good <laughs> yes. be proud. yeah exactly be proud. <laughs> number, four, <laughs> number four is pretty good you should be proud <laughs> god damn it henry <laughs> is this code what is this <laughs> this is what is this am i fired tell me please <laughs> so what's the uh what's the weirdest fan reaction that you've seen <laughs> I mean, I don't want to go negative, but I think it, it was the sort of like when my my words were taken out of context. Yeah. Because and I'll just I'll, I'll say it. I I had put in a in an interview that, uh, perhaps James Kirk never saw a Gorn, and that that's what I said. But what I meant was he'd never seen a Gorn before his adventure on Arena. Mm-hmm. Right. And someone took what I said to mean he'd never seen a Gorn during the episode arena and uh and that, that that makes no sense to me and why but 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 there's people who who that episode means so much to them that they, they immediately think that i meant that i was trying to undo that episode and i wasn't i and in, in over explaining my own process with the gorn i i created a situation where um and 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 look we're all creatives and we're actually very sensitive so uh, I, I felt bad. I felt bad that that people were reacting poorly to to the Gorn, 
uh, or to the re reintroducing that that and 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 that I in my own endeavor to try and make something okay, I had the opposite effect. Right, I tried to explain a writer's process, a writer's thing, and in making it not clear enough, somebody just immediately you know took, took it the wrong way. Yeah. So I'm going to go on record to say. James T. Kirk fights a Gorn in arena, and that does happen. <laughs> and he does shoot a diamond cannon gun at him. And and if you watch the episode, Spock is getting off on that. He really enjoys watching James T. Kirk kick this Gorn's ass. It's and true. to me, that always read as like, there's a personal investment in beating up on these things. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man, that's beautiful. And I got to say, there is a there is a contingent of fans that you know we all are aware of out there that just sort of assumes that the creatives behind any given show are very cynical people who only care about their paycheck and don't care about the details. So just if, if our show could be anything, you know, tell your creative friends, Davey, this is the show you go to to clear up anything that somebody took out of context or, you know. So when they come wrong. for your ass, yeah. when they come for your you ass, send you them to open, open pike, pike night, night. Right. and they will clear it right up. Yeah. Exactly. That's the reputation. We want well, to have multiple reputations. Clear, like, I'm not trying to call anybody out. I'm not trying to like even get on. a. Right. am not even trying to explain myself, really. Like, I don't want to over explain myself. Uh, I just want to. I just want to say that to your point, I love Star Trek. I enjoy Star Trek. I want people to love and enjoy Star Trek. And and I'm put in a position of having to write in a universe that other people have created realities for themselves. And yet now I have to make choices that are going to be officially canon, that, that is going to rub up against some things that you might um, have been holding on to for a while. And I'm sorry for that. But, you know, it's a thing where we want to tell these stories and we want people to enjoy these stories. And we want the universe to grow and expand. And we want these characters to have, you know, fleshed out adventures yeah, yeah i'm what i'm hearing is that you're a spurk shipper is that accurate i'm hearing <laughs> spurk look man we don't, vulcan, vulcan social constraints are you know there's a lot to explore there you know i you know they're logical <laughs> that's about it <laughs> well speaking of people who love the gorn and weird fan reactions uh we've got another clip Hi, Mr. Perez. Hi, boys. I would like to start by apologizing for not doing the stupid bit that you told me to do. I'm just going to fit them all in one call because that's easier. I am Venus. I am Gornfluencer Venus, but you take us on Twitter. <laughs> and I have so many questions about the Gorn. Uh, namely, their design. What were those influences like? Did you have any hand in their visual design directly? Or was it something that you got your hands on after deciding how you wanted to reintroduce them? What was that process like? Uh, how was the team for that? Was that enjoyable? Was that something that like you have a passion for and you would love to do with more Star Trek aliens? Because I would like to see more Star Trek aliens. My other main question is I know that there was a statue of the Gorn made for season one wrap, and I know that the Gorn were practical effects. How can I, as a fan who loves the Gorn very much, get my hands on one of those? Like, how can I do that? Um, if necessary, you can just invoice the boys for it. Um, <laughs> they are totally willing to pay expensive so many dividends um for <laughs> getting me one of the gorn from snw thank you 
Uh, great, great question. <laughs> the company that, that uh, designed this with us is called Legacy, and, and they were awesome to work with. And um, it was a lot of Henry and a lot of Akiva and a little bit of me. Uh, not, not a lot. I mean, they, they graciously looped me in. So in the, in the early, early days, they were, they were working. So even before Memento Mori, they were working on creature designs. Um, and then when, when it became clear that I was going to get to write both Gorn episodes, they sort of said, you know, loop me into to some of this and um, got to give like my input and on, on choices and color, mostly <laughs> uh, some of the, the creature design. And then, you know, they, they designed the practical puppets and the the Gorn, what what I got to do, what I thought was fucking awesome, to be honest, was flesh out the the like life cycle stuff, you know, the the like mm-hmm. you, you know, their how they're born, uh, their 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 motivation when they're born is just to feed and to eat because you know whichever one of this batch is gonna you know feed and eat the most is gonna become the alpha of the batch, and so the idea that they're ravenous when they're born and that's when they're hatchlings. They get a little bit bigger, the, the, you know, and then they're younglings. So they're a little bit more intelligent. They're a little bit more savvy. They, they might not attack right away. They'll sort of, and that's like the middle phase. You know, that's like the adolescent phase. And then, you know, after that is the adult. And God, God, God help you if you ever meet the, the one that has actualized into an adult. Because now that they're, they're, you know, they might not be a rubber suit, you know, <laughs> but they're, you know, they're. So a lot of a lot of that and a lot of the you know uh, story mythos foo of like why we can't track them and then all of a sudden we find a way to track them and all that. Yeah. Uh, so that that I got to 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 play with and be a part of because I, I you know as the writer of that episode I got to like oh cool I get to do the the, the rules you know um, and I got to work with the Henry and Akiva on that and um, as far as the uh, statues are concerned. Um, I have one in my closet, uh, it's still in its box. Yeah. So they exist. Uh, I, I was fortunate enough to get one. Uh, I don't know how many, I know Henry has one. I'm pretty sure Akiva has one. Um, I don't know who else might have Have one. you named it. I haven't, I have not named it. Um, I'd like to think he was the alpha. <laughs> I mean, um, Michael Gorn would be pretty appropriate. Michael <laughs> Gorn, the, pretty, the Gorn identity. Uh, we Jason did that one. Gorn, yeah. you know? yep. <laughs> I think Daniel that's actually. I think Jason Gorn was how we closed our episode for Memento Mori. Oh, I think so yeah. many Gorn puns. <laughs> I it was yeah. yeah. There's the, the Gorns that keep on giving. I'm too scared to display it, so that's why it's still in the <laughs> <Nice>. box. <laughs> I don't know how you could get your hands on one because they were limited to a a specific amount made by Legacies uh, to commemorate the first season and specifically for the people who worked on that episode. So I, the director may have gotten one, uh, Chris J. Byrne. Um, um, and now uh, they, probably, they might get bombarded by people. Uh, yeah. And, <laughs> Uh, Venus, we will let you know if we end up with an invoice at the Open Pike Night account. That's a good question from Venus, yeah. So you were put in charge of the Gorn. You got both Gorn episodes. Uh, how did that come about? I, at a certain point, I think it became intentional. I mean, the the, the submarine portion of the, the first episode was what I really uh, glommed onto. And uh, I was like, you know, I, I, uh, I'm sort of a genre writer. It's got a horror-ish you know, the un- unseen enemy chasing you. It's an action adventure. And it's just sort of like a case of the week as far as survival is concerned. And so I, I got to 
uh, write that one. And then as we were figuring out the back half of episodes, I don't I don't really remember how it came about. But at, so at a certain point, it was just like, oh, I guess yeah, we we got to someone's got to write those episodes. And David did the Gorn episode, so let him you know do the the B Gorn episode. And I said, hell yeah, cool. And also actually. More likely as well, that was flagged as our horror episode. Okay. So 109 was always going to be our horror episode. And and, and I have that in my wheelhouse. Uh, you know, Kayla as well. She's definitely got that in her wheelhouse. But um, she wanted to do the, uh, the fantasy episode. And, and uh, I got to do this one. And uh, it was awesome. Excellent. So Memento Mori and all those who wander almost feel like the first and second part of a single episode. And... Clearly, some of that is because you were in charge of both of those. But is there some way that the character arcs are assigned at the beginning of the writing process that has to do with the similarity between these episodes? Or was it just a conscious decision to have one kind of feel like the second half of the other one? I think that was a subconscious decision. Um, I, we know that we want our characters to go on a journey and they're going to arc out in the way that they are. But I think, you know, and it was the benefit, I think, of having them both assigned to me because I was sort of inside the characters already and sort of knew setups that I set up them in four. So it was easier for me to land those things, right? Like the, the Emmer and Ohura relationship. Right. You know, that was set up very cleanly in four. So I was very conscious of that and wanting to pay that off in a very satisfying way. Um, the stuff in my head about Lon's backstory that didn't end up in Momentum Murray, but like got, got sort of hinted at, I could kind of dip into that well a little bit and talk about how her brother was killed. And, um, you know, it, it, it's easy to kind of get in her head space and write her a little edgy, you know, and it makes sense because I, I, I'm sort of aware of what I set up for her. And, um, and even just the interactions with, pike because in, in in the first you know memento mori it's very much like uh, i'm getting used to this officer who i brought aboard my ship and i'm giving them some advice and then in by nine they're like no we're a team we work together you're on this team we're all here mm-hmm. um so it's kind of like a, a really cool they, they feel like a bookend because i think i was lucky enough to write both of them you know and they would probably feel that way even if another writer wrote them but i think there's, there's something in the subtext of it, that that is, you know, when you get someone that can kind of set up a few things and then pick them off in a way that, that that is satisfying, you know, makes sense. Get to get to knock down your your own setups makes it slightly easier to just kind of do it as a na- as yeah. a natural part of the process, right? And it's instead of having to like give somebody notes of like, oh, remember that thing that they we did in four? Like, it's like, no, I I should remember it because I did a thing, you know. So our friend Mariah actually, I think, has a question that specifically pertains to Laon, if you wouldn't mind queuing that one up, John. Hi, Open Pike Night. This is Mariah calling from Seattle. Um, And hi, Davey. Thank you so much for being on the show. My question um, begins with a compliment, which is simply put, Laon Noonien Singh. Uh, She is such an amazing character, so complex and interesting. And um, my question is about how you approached creating her relationship with her own trauma, because it feels very real. Um, You know, she 
doesn't remember everything. She has trauma-blocked memories. Her emotions aren't very close to the surface, and every now and then you see a flicker of it. And she sort of has these dissociative episodes, and all of it just feels very much like a lived experience of dealing with trauma. And so I'm wondering what went into creating that. Um, Did you read about uh, people's experiences? Was there, um, you know, other characters that you are uh, drawing on to make this? And yeah, I'd just love to hear what went into it. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Mariah. That that was uh, some kind compliments and, and really insightful uh, question. Um, when I think of Lon's uh, re- as a representation for trauma survivors and how we managed to get that close to accurate. First of all, the character was created by Akiva. And Akiva had the idea of this character that has this um, childhood trauma that they are trying to um, get past and not allow it to inform them, even though we all know trauma informs you anyway. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was something that was important for him. Uh, and he, he put that in the pilot and, and wanted to do something with it. You know, it, there's there was a kismet of his concept, me as the writer, actually having childhood trauma to, to draw from and my relationship to it and my, you know, uh, struggles with adulting and having a positive outlook in life while still experiencing and knowing some of the darkness of, of humanity. And then you have um, a performer in, in Chrissy um who uh quite frankly she's been very open about it also has childhood trauma in her background and so she's portraying lon uh from the perspective of of knowing and understanding the character i'm writing lon from a perspective of understanding pieces of the character and you have akiva who had created it because of his own relationship with that concept and so you it's like a trifecta of of wanting to give some veracity and ultimately look uh we are all happy people that get to do amazing things and we're not defined by those so lon is a high functioning badass security officer on the flagship of the federation but she's got some shit that that comes up and so she's got to deal with it when it comes up you know there is a, a subtle parallel in memento mori between pike and the gorn when he realizes, oh, I'm going to have to be willing to trade lives to beat this enemy. And that's after the Gorn make their tactical choice to sacrifice a ship to find the Enterprise. Uh, Is this an intentional parallel? Is that something that you put in there on purpose? Or was that another one of those like happy accidents that just happens when you're humming along in the process? What what makes me look more brilliant? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Very writerly answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I look cards up. I think that was uh, a very happy accident. Look, I wanted to do the submarine trope, the mm-hmm. the hard decision to make. Right, I got to seal the bulkheads, and when you lose your you know youngest officer, and it's you know it's every submarine movie from from the beginning of cinema has a scene like that. So I knew that that was something that I wanted to put in there. And then when we were trying to figure out what are some cool, interesting, smart, like chess moves that the Gorn can be doing that would also seem completely just unexpected for us, this idea that they would hang their queen, 
you know, and, 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 and then that, that they're animalistic and that some of, some of them can die as long as the pack survives. We were like, Oh cool. Yeah, absolutely. They would put something out there to get killed and they wanted us. That's how they, they, you know, they put the bait and we took it. And so that it, it was just kind of, again, like this great, unexpected uh you know synergy of like they do it callously coldly yeah obviously we're going to kill some people to find out your position and we do it and just one is like painful and hard and you know it's the horrors of war yeah i mean that kind of uh moment was one of uh anson mount's great uh performances in that but both your episodes really did hinge on non-verbal performances i mean memento mori i just think is like a master class from anson mount uh, there's like a five second period where his it's just a close up on his face going through like six different emotions and it's incredible. And so as a writer, like how do you convey those uh, important nonverbal cues or when do you just kind of let it go and trust in the actors? I mean, Anton's a stud. So like he, I, I, and I actually have gotten better at giving more clues because a lot of what I write is subtext sometimes. And, um, maybe it's too subtextual because the people then go, what am I supposed to be playing here? And I'm like, Oh shit. Like I didn't give you the clues. Right. Mm. Um, and so, but he's just really good at picking up the clues, even when you didn't give them to him, you know? And uh, a lot of our actors are, um, and it's, it's, you, you, you do uh, put in some lines in there sometimes to be like, you know, it, we feel the tension or uh, this is a big moment for them as they think about X and sometimes it plays and sometimes it doesn't, you know, sometimes that was the wrong thing to say because now they're doing too big Uh, or sometimes they nail it right on the head, you know, but you do, um, you do learn over time some phrases that, that an actor could recognize as, Oh, that's what they want me to do. You know, that's, they need this from me here, you know? And I think someone, like Anson in particular, who's been doing it so much, he can probably look at the dialogue and be like, oh, I see what they need me to do here. I'm trying to think of a particular thing there. I think I might have written like, uh, you know, uh, the decision is hard on Pike. He knows what he has to do or something. Mm-hmm. And like, it's so vague. Like, any, But what does that mean? But he know he like gets that and he goes, oh, I can act that. You know what I mean? But you're telling the director um, and the actor like, there's a, this is a beat. It's a moment. This is a beat. This is a moment. We need a thing here. And you could write it that way or you can write it camera on Pike as he thinks, you know, um, and it just depends on, on, okay, what's he thinking? You know, do you, um, do you find different actors have different like keywords to, to trigger them? Probably. Yeah. Some actors probably don't even read the direction. You know, <laughs> they're just like, I'm just reading my lines and they, they'll take their cues from that. Um, yeah. So it is, it is, uh, <laughs> I love Chrissy and she has the best questions. You know, she's someone who who really wants to get inside of it. And even if it's in the dialogue or in the slug line, she wants to make sure if she's, you know, is this correct? Am I reading this right? And sometimes her question is like a revelation where you're like, Oh, she's pointing to something that I hadn't figured out yet as the writer. I better, I better figure that out before I answer this. Um, and, and sometimes uh, her question is just a clarification thing. Yeah. They, they, they're all great to work with. They're all, they all get in there and um, you know, Celia has uh, really, you know, specific takes on things that is awesome. And she's, she's always wary of, uh, you know, getting it right in, in, 
making sure that that we're getting what we need and so she has uh you know the whole cast like we're, we're fortunate to just have a really amazing cast and i think that makes writing for them so much easier and better and if there wasn't a name that i said i should say all the <laughs> names you know because it's oh, yeah it's like you know babs you know, jess uh, rebecca's it's just it's come on you know you got <laughs> yeah. you got you who do you want to play with this week you know melissa yeah you know uh yeah Ethan, yeah, he's okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love, he, he, that, he'll get that joke. Ethan, Ethan is, uh, I, I could say that because he, he plays magic. <laughs> but uh, which uh, which actor is your favorite to write for? Character. Oh, character. boy. Character, character. Which yeah. character? I mean, I love a good Pike speech. You oh, can't go wrong with a yeah. good. Um, and I, I think, I, you know, he's a fun captain to write for because he is a rally the troops and then let the troops shine. Mm-hmm. He's not a follow me. You know, he's a, he's a, I got to inspire you to the point where you do your best selves. Servant which leader. Is, which is, yeah. And that's hard to write. You can certainly write a, a leader who's, oh, I'm going to tell you what to do now. It's harder to kind of write a leader who's like, I'm going to show you the way that you can go shine yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, uh, he's, so he's great to write for. I love writing for Lon, as I've explained, just because of the, the, you know, the closeness I have for the character. Uh, and then, you know, the, the Rain Man jokes you get to do with Spock. You know? <laughs> like there's no other character that you can, you know, sort of uh, sneak in some sort of that absurd humorism. So you mentioned being a big fan of TOS and TNG, and I think that definitely shines through in your episodes. I have to ask, as a Star Trek fan... How did it feel to write a capital M maneuver complete with a gravity slingshot and everything, man? Like, what did that feel like? That was dope. I mean, that was like, I was like thinking they're not going to let me do it, right? But they're like, hey, that's a lot of cannon too soon, kid. Um, <laughs> and uh, I was like, it's the pike maneuver. And everyone's like, yeah, it is. It totally is. And I'm like, fuck yeah, it is. <laughs> so, <cool>. so <laughs> to give that line to ortegas right is sort of a, a cool like you know the if we pull this shit off it's the pike maneuver and it just it, it felt great that the latin character gets the name the maneuver and the latin character gets the name the maneuver you know <laughs> yeah um so uh that was kind of awesome and it's there it's on the memory alpha it's like you know it's 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 a thing that captain pike did that is in the annals of Starfleet as his crazy ass maneuver where, where you get yourself out of a jam. Um, it was, it was really great. That is so cool. So I think to move into our questions for all those who wander producer, John, if you wouldn't mind queuing up our other friend, Jesse, who is not me. Hi guys, it's Jesse. I'm really excited to hear you have Davy Perez on stage this week because All Those Who Wander is my absolute favorite episode of Strange New Worlds, with Memento Mori being second. As you know, I am a new Trekkie, and so getting episodes that give that alien xenomorph vibe really gets me excited. My question was, how excited or scared were you to reimagine the Gorn to the Star Trek world and to audiences who have had this one idea of the Gorn for so many years? Also, I believe Hemmer's death was always planned for season one, so what made this be the time his death happened? Thank you for your time, and vive mucho y prospera. <laughs> well, muchas gracias, Jesse. That's uh, uh... 
I love the 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 compliments and the question is is uh pretty pretty good. Uh I was uh, super excited to be a part of reimagining it and also hesitant and frightened because I was like how are we going to how can we do this? Like I was I was probably where a lot of uh fans were at the beginning of this process of like but it's first contact in arena and how how can we do that? Um, and so I had to do a lot of mental gymnastics to find the gray areas. Um, and, and I, I got there eventually to be like, this is still an, a species we don't know that much about. They have a legendary status. Some people don't believe they exist. Uh, some people haven't seen them. Uh, they're the boogeyman. Mm-hmm. And then um, to, to uh, you know, like there was a point where we're like, how alien are we going here, guys? This is pretty alien. <laughs> and it's like, well, if people are going to know we're going alien. So let's just kind of embrace a piece of it. Uh, but it was, you know, I, I, it's like alien, the thing in Gremlin, where the, I was kind of, <laughs> you know, going for a little bit, you know, the, the sort of John Carpenter, you know, who, who do you trust? Who, who don't you trust? And uh, what's really gone down here? We don't know. And then tiny monsters are always awesome. Um, and, and just a lot of filament. You know, when you when they're running around, yeah. Um, it was it was like a you know working on like an '80s horror set, which was awesome. And as far as the hammer uh, is concerned of it all, we absolutely, I think in in the early early days of this episode, uh, when we said it's a horror episode, we we had conversations of like, well, what a, what does horror movie do really well? And it's the unexpected death. You know, and, um, you know, there was some version of this where he was going to get got pretty early because of Psycho, right? Like the person you don't expect to die, mm-hmm. dies right away. Yeah. But then we started having Tasha Yar conversations and we're like, <laughs> yeah, we can't mm-hmm. like it's got to feel earned and it has to feel there's got to be some weight to it. And, um, you know, now I'm just really outing all the things I ripped off um, <laughs> my, you know, one of the first movies I ever saw in movie theaters uh, was Wrath of Khan. And um, if you're a new Shrek fan and haven't seen Wrath of Khan, go see Wrath of Khan. Um, and watch Space Seed if you want to first. You don't have to, but watch Space Seed and then go watch Wrath of Khan. And um, that ending, man, spoiler, like, woo, really, really fucked me up as a, as a like seven-year-old, six-year-old kid. Like, no, this character I just love from TV and fell in love with and you did this. Um, and so I was channeling that and director chris j Byrne really like immediately after he read the script you know he like on the zoom was like this is wrath of khan like this scene is wrath of khan i'm like yes you got it yes it totally is uh it's the big speech it's the all the feels and so um yeah it was always planned and it made sense for this episode because it was the horror but then it made sense because it was the culmination of of uh, her as arc really it was her um having in losing hammer realizing i lost another person of my family shit that means this ship is my new family hmm. you know it was this sort of like one two of like you know she wasn't sure it, where she belonged and do it should i should i stay should i go i just lost the one person that means the most to me and he was able to mean so much to me because i found a new home you know um and so all of that uh it it, it was just it just felt like that was the episode to do that in and, and and also like kind of I didn't I wouldn't say I threw down a gauntlet but I was like 
you know what? I'm going to make this feel like where the fuck happens next, right? Like, I, I let's kill off Hammer. Let's get rid of Lon. Let's, you know, all this crazy shit goes down. And it's like, what? What just happened? Um, because I, and I, I, we had the benefit of knowing that 10 was a little bit of a left turn. Yeah. Like, all those questions aren't going to get necessarily answered. And then 10 leaves you with the big what the fuck. So, like, really kind of did a, a one-two on the finale yeah. and, the, and the penultimate. What's it like to write for the new engineer? What new engineer? There's an engineer <laughs> on the show. Hey, there you go. <laughs> well played, Davey. Uh, <laughs> Carol Kane? Is it Carol Kane? Can you tell yeah. us that? Yeah, yeah. I think that's public knowledge, right? Um, I believe so, yeah. I mean, I know that she's an engineer. Right. She looks to be an engineer. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, w- I was going to ask that exact question, though, Davey, because that's what hit me at the end of episode nine. It was like, wait, how is this not the season finale? Like, this feels like a season finale. Where the characters are leaving, Ahura's kind of made her arc. She's looking at the comm station. And then, you know, we saw episode 10. And like you said, it's kind of left field. It made sense why we had to kind of bring everyone else's arcs to a close in episode nine. So, but it sounds like maybe that was just you. Was that designed or was that you kind of doing it? No, or? it was a, a little bit of both. I mean, it was a little bit of a, a conversations with Henry. Like, I want to for, swing for the fences and do these big things. And he was like, uh, you know, is it too early to do these big things? And you know, what do we do with, uh, you know, Lon for the 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 finale? And how do we do? That? And then when we realize, well, we're going into alternate future, and a big chunk of the episode is so we can still use our characters. We don't have to answer these questions. And there was a we kind of embraced it. It was like, yeah, fuck it, let's do that. You know, and um, so that kind of came about with a little bit of me, sort of testing the waters, and then a little bit of him trying on and then embracing and then kind of pushing it further. And so when writers rooms are really going and they're on in their, in their stride, it's kind of hard to remember where the ideas really came from, you know, because you're just sort of in each other's heads and you're like, you're vibing on each other's ideas. And so for all I know, it was all him and I just wrote it, you know, I, mm-hmm. it was sort of like that kind of, we did balance the terror twice. Like, yeah. Let's be real. We did yeah. You know, Memento Mori was our send up of it. And then we just straight up did Balance of Terror, you know, yep. and it was so to geek out on being like, ah, so we're getting away with this. Look what we're getting away you with. You did Wrath you know of Khan I mean? twice. I mean, that, that's what I was reading on Memento Mori. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, no, yeah. well, so either yeah. way, you got to write basically a finale, a season finale for yeah. most of the characters. I mean, yeah, we did the Nebula. We did the Nebula of Wrath of Khan. And then we did the, the you know, the end scene. So, yeah, I just ripped off Wrath of Khan. Guys. Figured it out. <laughs> Yeah, shows the best. <laughs> yeah, speaking of having totally ripped off the Wrath of Khan, so Hemmer's fate is definitely foreshadowed in Memento Mori, right? I mean, he says, my purpose is to fix what is broken, and then Enar believe they can die. Like, a a writer friend probably could pick out, oh, he's going to die before the season is over, right? <laughs> right when he says that. So how do you decide how much of your hand to show early and which cards? You know, that's a good question. Um, I'm, I guess I'm a big fan of the whole Chekhov's gun thing, mm. you know, and um, I do like to, because it's satisfying, right? When you're a yeah. viewer, when you are like, I think I know what the writer's doing. He did it, you know. <laughs> now, you got to be careful because sometimes you go, I think I know what the writer's doing. It's kind of dumb, you know. <laughs> um, so you got to hang enough stuff out there to make them go, I think I know what the writer's doing. Oh, he's not doing that. That's interesting. Oh, shit, he is. You know, that's kind of what I hope to normally accomplish. And then you could only play that trick a couple times. In mo- even in Supernatural, I've 
been very fond of the shoe drop, you know, but which is almost can be its own trope. So I'm also very weary of it now. But like, I'm always fond of like, if I can get you to look at a story and forget you to and get you to forget one element of it. And then at the very end, just remind you, oh, but that thing you forgot is still here. And oh, my God, you turned it and oh, shit. You know, because that's the kind of stuff I love watching. I love watching it or reading. I love reading a good noir. And that's what noir does. You know, noir will show you who the killer is in the first chapter. And and then you'll be like, oh, God, that guy was the killer. I, I'd i known the whole time. But how did I forget? You know, um, and uh, I endeavor to try and get as good as, you know, the show Hammett and, and uh, Raymond Chandler. <laughs> So we do have two questions, uh, one from Peter and one from Michelle. I feel that you've sort of largely already answered these, but we will go ahead and play them. And if there's anything you want to tack on, then we can sort of replace some of your prior answers in the edit so that it's at least everybody's voice is heard. So, John, if you'd like to cue up our friend Peter. Here he is. Hi, it's Peter again. Thank you, Mr. Perez, for joining Open Pike Night and sharing your experience as a writer for season one. I have a general question about your approach to writing All Those Who Wander. Horror is the genre I'm the least familiar with, so I was wondering what was your approach to creating a horror story within the Star Trek narrative framework. For example, I believe I found some references to Alien and The Thing in the episode. Were those types of references in the story from the beginning, or were they added later during story development? Congratulations on writing two memorable season one stories, and I look forward to more in season two. Thank you, and live long and prosper. Uh, well, Peter, I appreciate the question, and um, I uh, do love horror as a genre, and I endeavor to create uh, stories um, in that uh, realm. And the thing about horror that I've uh, come to try and explore is the the fear of the unknown and the fear of uh you know that's what we're all afraid of the dark still in some way right whether it's an emotional or intellectual or physical darkness and so uh, approaching um a trek idea you know devil in the dark is probably a good one to look at which is the the the, the tos episode that they get the closest to horror um but most of what Star Trek does is like give us hope and show us the light and show us the the future that we all wish that we could have. So it was kind of interesting to be like, what is a, a Star Trek horror? Impact uh, Noor is another good uh, example of that. So I had some references to kind of guide me. And in, in, in a lot of those stories, it was always about putting horror elements on top of the mystery. So I approached it from that, the mystery of this ship. Uh, and then, yeah, the thing was a real big influence as far as like, there's this outpost that had this thing happen and we don't know. And we show up and, Oh my God, there's blood and guts everywhere. And there's something running around that could be inside all of us. Um, that's, you know, that's the thing. That's uh, where did I hear that? Where did I see that? Oh shit. That's an alien as well. You know? And, <laughs> um, and, and this is actually a little bit more aliens with an S. Oh, yeah. You have a group of people, <laughs> you know, right down to, you know, I had to have Jay, uh, you know, Sam Kirk, have his game over man scene. <laughs> i was gonna say did you ever write him just flat out saying that just for fun I, he he came up to me he just goes this is game over man right so, yeah, yeah, okay. and, and, and he still wanted to be like you know 
I'm not a weenie, right? I go, no, no, no. You're you're like the one that's right. You're the one who's like, we. Sh- you're the one who's seeing this as the audience sees it. Like this, this situation is like, we're fucked, right? And he's like, okay, I can play that. Like he just didn't want to, like he didn't want it to feel like, like cowardice. I'm like, no, this is realism. This is, you're pragmatic. Everyone else is too calm, you know? So does that mean that Buckley is the dog from the thing. <laughs> and I guess, but I, can we talk about Buckley? Yeah. Because Buckley was amazing. I want to know how much, like, oh, I love Buckley. Yeah, how much I want to have in that? Let's have some Buckley appreciation. Yeah, absolutely. Is oh, he named God. after anything? We've heard that writers name people after stuff. He is named after, uh, I have a friend named David Martinez who I used to call Buck. And there's multiple reasons why I call Buck. Uh, mostly because I, I I I don't want to get into it, but it's, it's <laughs> I can imagine why. I, yeah, yeah, you know all the think of the funniest, weirdest guy reason you would call your best friend Buck, and um uh and so anytime I could sneak in Buck or Buckley into uh, uh anything, it's always kind of a shout out to him. Uh, uh, Mud is another nickname I had him uh, Mud, and you know, his name is Mud uh, or Buck. Because you know it started one day because he was wearing overalls and I was like you know you look like a buck hey buck and you know <laughs> t- hey buck you know take it from there um, so that's really where the the name came from um, <laughs> yeah but let me make sure I'm answering Peter's question uh, yeah and then I, I did mention that there was the the thing aliens uh, the the original black and white thing you know takes place uh, you know is actually probably more similar. To than the than the the John Carpenter remake because that's at a science lab and the more you know they're both at a science lab but you know what I'm saying mm-hmm. um, and Gremlins like I really was like the whole tiny monsters thing with 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 little moments of levity because like horror has to be like I'm gonna get all esoteric here but I like to write my scripts like they were music like they were a song and so I like to have it take a journey and so. There's a refrain, there's a chorus, there's an there's a there's a moment where you're a crescendo and then you go pianissimo. And so I just approach the jazz of it all in that way. And so in a good hall, there's always a good laugh, there's always a good comment, there's always a good jump scare. You know, and so there's just the language of horror that that you start to like I said, I I can get weird. I can get, you know, it's uh you know, it's past my bedtime. I can get all kinds of kooky. <laughs> As far as surrogates go, you know, I'm sure every audience member got to pick their, oh, that's how I would be in this. And it was refreshing to see the Enterprise crew actually listen to La'an, not, you know, she wasn't the Ripley to everybody else's idiot. <laughs> but, like, who was your surrogate in All Those Who Wander? Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, that's, I would say Spock, I think. Um, interestingly enough, like, there, obviously I got to voice them also. There's little pieces of me, but the, like, <laughs> you know, Spock let out his gangster side. You know, yeah. he he was like, he's calm and cool, and he's like, you know, I'm I'm balanced here. I'm doing my Vulcan thing. Everyone knows me as a Vulcan, and he he let down his guard because, in that moment, it was fight or flight, and and so he he had to go full crazy, right? Yeah. And so he and and so I, not that I go full crazy in my life anymore, but I've certainly in in my past and as an adult you have impulses, right. That you, you sit on and you have um, reactions to things that you rationalize or your logical self does don't react that way. And so for him to be like, no, man, 
I'm going to go out there and just fucking cap some of these little gorns because they're because they it's their time to die. Um, you know, there's something fun about that for me. Did you write that he picks up Buckley's gun to do it, or did that just happen? <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, oh, uh, hell yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, the the the. If you have a spear, you know, like that, that you have the prop department make, like you got to see it fight, yeah. you know, and, and we've seen him fight with Lerpas and shit. Mm-hmm. I was like, I actually look, now you're going to mourn the cutting room floor. So mm. the, Ooh, this is what this we're here for. Sequence as imagined that is not producible because we are a TV show was like a full on crazy fight scene where Spock is parkouring off the corridor walls and like, you know, spear fighting a Gorn. And, uh, you know, you get a call from production like, yeah, dude, like, uh, <laughs> he's going to walk and he's going to stop. And yeah, he's going to charge a Gordon and, and, and shock it a couple of times. We're giving you guys <laughs> a like, lot oh, of money on. already. OK, yeah. like, come yeah, on. yeah. They're like, this is not for box office release. Uh, so, we'll give you a check off spear. That's what you get. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You get check off spear. Um, but yes, yeah, I was like, you know, as a fanboy, I was like Spock doing you know a little bit of uh canon on vulcan uh stoism a little bit of like remembering that they could all they could revert to those cave vulcans that are fucking vicious <laughs> you know and, and how do they keep that animal at bay and it's like a thing that they have oh it's a mantra they have it's their all of their their rituals well is there a ritual to just to, to lower that inhibition and what what kind of crazy do you let out then and then what was awesome is that like well, now that we paid that forward, like the discovery of like, well, I didn't then that we don't have to resolve that, you know, like we yeah. can we can sort of like, what does that mean for Spock that he's going to maybe be he's not the Spock that we know from TOS yet. He's not Mr. Mr. Totally Vulcan. I don't identify as human. This is a dude who's exploring himself and he just let out the human side in a crazy, interesting way. Yeah. And it, it yeah. can take a while to unring that bell. So, yeah, can it be unrung at all? Yeah, I don't know that that hug between him and Chapel at Oof. the end of that episode. I was like, well, I was there when they were filming that, and I was like, I leaned into Chris. I was like, that's pretty good. <laughs> you know, I just knew I was like, that's is that's pretty that's that you know lost in translation. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's it's just a nice nice moment. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, John, if you want to go ahead and queue up our friend Michelle after her, I think I've only got two questions left. Hey, Open Pike Night. Your interview with Onitra Johnson was moving, inspiring, and I am so glad she came on to share her story. And I can't wait to see what stories she's going to share with all of us for season two. I'm very happy that Davy Perez is coming on the Open Pike Night stage this week. So welcome. My question is about the episode All Those Who Wander. I loved Hemmer. I was coming to love Hemmer and feel like he's gone too soon, but I do appreciate you giving him a good ending. So thank you for that. Uh, but my question is really about Ahura and Hemmer and how that those last few scenes and interactions seem to mirror a little bit the end of Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan, at least to me. So I don't know if that was an inspiration for you when you were writing the episode, but I definitely felt some Wrath of Khan vibes uh, toward the end there. So just wondering if you could speak to that. Also, my Crusher connection of the week, because I do love the character of Dr. Beverly Crusher, 
is the creep factor of that episode and how scary it was for Star Trek. Um, Gates McFadden, who played Dr. Crusher, directed the episode Genesis, which is known to be very creepy and had excellent makeup and excellent effects for its time. Uh, And your episode certainly raises the bar for Star Trek scary episodes. So kudos to you for that. Really enjoyed it. And I can't wait to see what is coming up for season two. Live long and prosper. Oh, thank you, Michelle. Um, you kind of hit the head on the, on the, on the, on the nail there. Like, uh, Wrath of Khan is, you know, very much in the language of that scene, but also, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, we want to do a meaningful Wrath of Khan death here. And then another thing to kind of pull it off. And so to really, um, get there i had to mine some personal stuff Uh, obviously like i I mentioned when i watched the movie as a kid i had this emotional reaction to it and i felt as if i lost uh, a member of my family because i i was like oh my you know fuck and and he's been in my home watching him on tv with my dad and then um that sort of started to unlock little little keys for me and so, you know, a little bit of insight. My my older brother is an engineer. He's actually a, an engineer. And um, I have a very uh, great relationship with him. And, and he has taught me many things about myself and life. So when I was writing Hammer, I was thinking ab- about my brother quite a bit. Um, in Memento Mori, even the, the, an engineer's best tools are his uh, hands and his, his mind. Um, you know, uh, the original line, I think, was, you know, an engineer's best tools are his hands. And I was like, no, my brother, his best tool is his mind. And so, like, little things like that, I was, like, always trying to infuse that. So then when it came to write that goodbye, um, that advice that Hemmer is giving is actually advice that my brother has given to me as far as, you know, when I was a, a younger man and sort of, uh, you know, my brother has an amazing family. Uh, he, he's a great father and, and uh, um, <laughs> when I was sort of like figuring out you know this is before I met my own wife and sort of you know as, c- coming up as, as a young individual trying to figure out what I want for my own life and his advice it's not word for word but his advice was sort of always there for me and so anyway I channeled my, my brother in writing Hammer and that's why I think I was able to get close to that wrath of Khan because I was writing from a personal place. I was writing from something that meant something to me. And so hopefully if it means something to me, it might mean something to all of you. I'll be honest. I, so last night as I was watching this episode again in preparation for tonight, that was the first time that the wrath of Khan connection hit me. And it was like, Oh, Spock actually lived through the thing he does at the end of wrath of Khan. Now he has seen what it can mean to sacrifice yourself for your shipmates. And I just started crying again. We've had that conversation where, where it's like the, when he, when he gets up out of the sea in wrath of Khan and beelines it down for the thing, he knows that that's what he, there's no hesitation because there, he, from his own eyes has seen no hesitation from someone he admired. And there's that, that, that very poignant line from Spock where he says a very logical, like <laughs> you, in that moment of I'm full of emotion, He's still in. He's still processing in this thing, this lesson that he learned. Of you know, we didn't want to do the line, the the needs of the many outweigh right. the needs, whatever, because that's a line that's very 
uh, you know, specific to that movie, but we wanted to, the lesson here was the needs of this family, this crew outweigh the needs of, you know, me and what you feel for me. The, I'm glad that it resonates with people. That it means the same to others as, as it does to those of us who create it. So you mentioned that you love horror and we got to geek out with Akela a little bit about some of her favorite horror movies. What are some of Davy Perez's favorite horror films? Uh, Castle Freak, ah. oddly enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. I, I have that yeah. VHS just floating around here somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Stuart Gordon, uh, you know, From Beyond, Castle Freak. Those were like, I was always watching those. Obviously, John Carpenter's entire catalog of of everything. Um, I like the, the Event Horizon, it, it, you know, yeah. especially mm-hmm. as a sci-fi writer. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, those kinds of like, you know, I, I read Lovecraft um, for for good and for bad because he he has problematic uh, worldviews, but um, a lot of the things that he taps into the esoteric fear of the unknown and and the, uh, the cosmic horror. Um, those you know anything Stephen King is obviously like like bread and butter, but it's almost like uh you know my 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 sister and i we we grew up watching Tales from the Dark Side and monsters mm-hmm. on on t v and we were like eight or nine watching uh these things and uh just sort of soaking it in, you know, and then by the time we were like in our teenage years, Stephen King watching those movies was kind of like watching regular TV. It wasn't, it wasn't horror to us. It was just like, Oh, we're watching a normal movie, you know, (laughs) because it it just, it's, I think that's why I like the really creepy, extreme kind of out there, weird Argento kind of stuff. Oh yeah. Well, you mentioned Stuart Gordon and we did ask Akela this, but uh, so when are we getting some Jeffrey Combs and strange new worlds? Davey? I don't know, man. Davey? I love me. I love Jeffrey Combs. Is is I, you know, if it were up to me, he'd be in everything, right? That's fair. Like, That's Jeffrey fair. Combs acting against Jeffrey Combs, <laughs> please. <laughs> yeah. Just you know, but if we get Jeffrey Combs, we got to get Barbara Crampton. You know, that's that's you know, yeah. no, no, no objection here for the listeners who can't see Davy's face. He gave nothing away. It, there's, it's it's not obvious if any of these people will be in season two. We tried. We're sorry. Uh, yeah, I don't. I I should uh, clarify. I don't know what happens in season two. Not I've not watched no. all of it. Uh, don't <laughs> wait a minute. Know. Wait a minute. Um, I. I did not write any episodes, but you were about to tell us about Bruce Horak's new character. So, um, yeah, Yeah. go ahead. (laughs) So you, you did, I I heard you mention that the way that you write scripts and it sort of goes back to the genesis of your, of your writing days, uh, is sort of like a song. And I find that really interesting because Dr. Mbenga speaks of how our reflections are what imbue musical notes with emotion for the listener. So if the same is true for stories in an impossible sci-fi setting, do you find theme or character to be more important for conveying the desired notes? Uh, I go with character. I think the characters reveal the theme. Uh, I think we, we have a theme that we're aiming for. And then as you, uh, tell that story the emotionality is going to come from the character interaction and then you'll find that um your characters have put that sometimes have changed the theme in a really good script something will happen that is often not intentional it can be intentional but it's best when it's not intentional 
And it's a character will say something that is actually the theme of the episode. I find it to be great when when it, it happens and you're like, oh shit, I found the theme. I didn't realize that was the theme <laughs> because the character just said it, you know. Um, and in some episodes, there's more than one thing that a character says and they become, you know, like the A and the B theme. Can I ask an extremely nerdy script writing question? When you're Absolutely. writing slug lines in space, do you put day or night? <laughs> we do. And then people always say, but how is it? Like we, this conversation comes up. <laughs> <laughs> more than more than I care to admit, because if you're near a planet and you can see the sun, I think sometimes we put day or night because we want to convey like the mood. But then we're like, but on the ship, it doesn't matter if it's day or night because their sun is there and it's always think. But then I think we, we, we got to a place where like our prime crew is the day shift. Mm-hmm. So if they're on, it's day. If it's skeleton crew or if it's like, you know, not main person in the seat. It might be night. It, honestly, like I wish there was an easy answer. The lights but are this, down. Literally, this conversation I have every episode I have during prep, where they're like, "You you slug this as night, but it's not." And I'm like, "Okay, I'm sorry." And then because, <laughs> or or if there's a if there's a story happening on the planet, and like the planet cycle is a twelve hour day, and then it, it's a whole yeah. So the short the, the 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 answer is it depends on the episode and what and where in space you are, you know. Fair, fair. Is there, is there ever a moment in the writers' room where somebody's just like, "Oh my god, you're all such nerds," <laughs> like <laughs> pretty, 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 pretty often. That's a day. But it's more like, "Oh my god, we're all such nerds." <laughs> <laughs> Let's play uh, D&D, you guys. <laughs> yeah, you guys. <laughs> well, Cam got to ask his question. I'm I'm going to ask. I'm going to go back to your how you got to define the life cycles of a Gorn. Um, we got to see in the pilot, you know, a, a young new civilization working on reaching the stars by the end of that episode. And after Memento Mori and we had started discussing this, I've had the image in my head of Gorn in like science aprons, holding up paper cutouts of creepy <laughs> Gorn ships. Like when, when do they learn how to build ships? Like what point in their life? <laughs> like an individual Gorn, like when do they mature into being able to like work on a, in a factory? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think after the, the youngling phase, when they've uh, proven that they're the, the, the alpha of their batch, uh, there's still a lot of developmental time. So they actually stay as a youngling for, for longer than they stay as a hatchling. Hmm. Um, and they, um, if you think about the planet that Laud was on, she was being hunted day and night. She was being hunted by these younglings. So they, these were already the ones that were the alphas of their batch. They're um, now kind of, you know, they're creating little like, you know, Gorn gangs, if you will, or Gorn packs hunting their their prey. So there's there's a lot of uh, proving your metal, I think, mm-hmm. which what we would call high school or maybe even college, you know. And so, um, you know, we haven't defined how long that cycle is, but it's not the 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 growth from hatchling to youngling is fast. The growth from the growth from youngling to adult is not as quick; takes longer. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, once uh, you know, in our heads, and we don't know if this is going to be official canon or uh, eventually as seen on screen, but in our heads, like once that breeding planet has sort of cycled into a good amount of younglings that are going to reach adulthood, a ship will come and be like, okay, guys, like get on board. 
you know, get your, your, your leather tunics and, and here's your, your, uh, you know, here's your wrenches for the assembly line. <laughs> yeah. Um, but at that point it's like, they're, they're communicating with each other more. They're, they're cooperating more. They're not in a ravenous primal phase and, 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 um, the, the, the Gorn, uh, you know, hegemony can say like, all right, now you're useful because you're not just going to ravage everything that you're around. Yeah. You know? Cause they've developed language by that point. They're communicating with by light and, and everything like that. So. Yeah. Like the, the, the Gorns have fully functioning society. They have fully functioning. Um, and it, it goes to sort of the conversation of, we are so, um, human centric in our ideas of development that how can we um, imagine what a completely foreign uh, alien might develop, like what their stages might be. And just because somebody develops uh, space travel doesn't mean that they don't also have a primal side to them. Mm-hmm. Sounds like uh, Gorn puberty lasts forever. Like that just is awful. And deadly as fuck. Yeah. Right? Well, I, mean, yeah. so, I mean, like regular, <laughs> that's just regular puberty, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. So they don't get to vote until they're done eating other people. Or, or I, think, I think that's a fair <laughs> rule. We Same rule that we have. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, Davey, since the episode aired, I've been on the edge of my seat. So maybe you can finally put this to rest. How did the delivery of vidium cells go? Did the Enterprise get them there on time? <laughs> Well, we know K7 exists because it's the star base that the trouble with Tribbles takes place. Okay. So the the Vidium cells were delivered without a hitch. Yes, they were. You've written many, many words in your career. Do you have a favorite line you've written, whether it's been produced or not? Absolutely. There's a line that I get into everything that I've done except my first job, which I still lament. But I was scripted and then it was uh, taken out and and I, I still wish I would have snuck it back in. Um, It's in an episode of um, strange new world and it's in an episode of supernatural. It is the line extra cheese. Uh, (laughs) And it is uh, the reason for this is because when I was uh, dating Amanda, my wife, and we were just getting to know each other. um, I, uh, we there's a, a place called Larchmont Wine and Cheese in LA that, that we absolutely love. And I one day drove like over the hill, out of my way in traffic, in the rain to get one to get these sandwiches. And, you know, like an hour and a half later, you know, surviving the LA traffic came, showed up and was like, hey, I got us Larchmont Wine and Cheese sandwiches. How great. And she took hers and she goes, oh, next time extra cheese. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was like, no, thank you. No, you know, and I, and I, we're no, getting divorced. You know, uh, baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're like, we've only been dating a couple weeks here. Uh, but I love that. I give her shit for it immediately and still to this day. But it was like this, like kind of moment where you found yourself comfortable with each other yeah. right like to, to, instead of being all like thank you i'm gonna eat the sandwich blah, blah, blah. it was the moment in the relationship where you're like nah man extra cheese you know <laughs> uh so I, I i i love that as a way to uh both uh, honor and poke fun at my wife and and the love that she's given me and so i put that in uh in, in everything that i do and i don't know if i could sneak it in again because it's it's a hard line to get in, but I got it. I did get it in, and all those who won. Yeah, uh, excellent. Benga, yeah. I believe. Uh, so 
Wow, that's that's really crazy, though. I just it's uh, Lon. I think no. It's... I think she asks. She says something, and then he pushes her a bowl, and might say extra cheese. He pushes her a bowl, but then it's Rebecca who says you're right. extra cheese. Uh, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, you're I'm right. not going to yeah, argue yeah, yeah. with you. I was like, <laughs> no, no, no. But I was like, it's not. But I was wrong that it was Chrissy. It was actually it was Una, right? Yeah, <sighs> it was in that little beat. You, you were right. You were you're in the right. So right, cool. Right. I yeah. <laughs> so you've worked on a couple of anthology shows. And I'm curious if Strange New Worlds were an anthology show, like what what Trek story overall, what what would you want to explore if you could choose, you know, for a season? I always loved uh, The Conscious of the King. Mm. Um, and it was the um, the butcher of uh, I'm forgetting the planet, but it was the idea that this colony a uh, governor went mad and like killed a bunch of uh, colonists. And I um, always thought that was an interesting thing. to. It, it unfortunately doesn't line up with where we are in the uh, star dates. I think it it's just like we, we miss being able to touch on that. But I, I just think it's a fascinating story, uh, sort of this colony out there in the wilderness that is no oversight. And there's this this sort of apocalypse now governor who goes crazy and starts you know taking out his own colonists i think that would be an interesting sort of anthology-esque you know that that's a that's a limited series right that's a mini you know like what happened at that colony right and we know he escapes persecute because he ends up playing you know Macbeth on that stage on, on the enterprise yeah i think it's Macbeth. that's cool thank you yeah all right, Davey, we've tried to get some uh, clues about season two out of you. So here's our last effort. <laughs> Can you give us, and, and most of the other people have, uh, one single word, one word that out of context will mean nothing to us. But when we watch season two, we'll be able to oh. go, ah, ah, ah. Totem. Totem, I like it. That's a good oh, one. We'll go up on our board. <laughs> Tie the red string around the pin and go on to the next. Yeah. Now, Open Pike Night is an open mic night themed podcast loosely and we do ask all of our guests to tell us their favorite joke so davy perez do you have a favorite joke for us not necessarily a joke but there's a setup and a bit of a punchline and um it it, it revolves around uh, a comedian trying to do his job so it's sort of relevant um a little backstory so when i was a kid uh i got tony danza and ted danson confused all the time <laughs> And my cousins would rib me all the time. And they'd always say, Davey, who, you know, who's the boss? And I'd be like, Ted Danson. And they'd be like, ah, you're a big idiot. It's totally not Ted Danson. And so like plagued me, like, you know, obviously has marked my psyche in some way. So fast forward, uh, probably 21, 22. I'm on a date trying to impress whoever I'm with. And we're at a a, uh, a venue and there's a comedian on stage and he's telling a joke and his punchline is, well, guess who's the boss now? And I yell, Tony Danza. <laughs> totally. Like out of nowhere, completely. Like I just, I, I panicked and yelled, Tony Danza. You got it right at least. Got a, yeah, got a, got a huge laugh. And the guy's like, well, my set's over. <laughs> totally heckled this. I feel so bad. So I to like heckle the guy off stage with, with, with a one-liner. <laughs> uh, 
that's good. That's fantastic. Uh, I, I, I thought you guys would appreciate that. <laughs> like, no, man, I swear, it's just PTSD. I wasn't yeah. trying I was like, to it's be just a jerk. PTSD. Yeah. This, is a trauma. this is a win for I me. I have who's the boss not... trauma. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, ah, oh, I got to answer. And like, I was like, I knew the answer. I panicked. Don't even answer. Man. <laughs> Thank you so much again, Davey. Seriously. For your time, of course, man. For your, this is awesome. your episodes, I love doing it. yeah. I mean, we uh, would love to have you back. We have some contact information for you. Trust us, you'll be hearing from us again. Yeah, great. Reach out. I love uh, you know being here and answering questions, and uh, you know, invite me back. I'd love to do it. Twisted our arms. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very <laughs> <Great>. much. <laughs> cool, man. Live long and prosper. Yes. That's right. Uh, live long. Good luck and prosper. with the, the magic and D and D and finding time for everything. <laughs> I will roll only 20s, I promise. <laughs> right. Excellent. All right, have a good off. night. Good night, right. guys. Have All a good right. one. Bye. We've been speaking tonight with Davy Perez, who brought the Gorn from the past to further in the past to the present to terrify us on Star Trek Strange New Worlds in Memento Mori and all those who wander. Davy, thanks for speaking with us tonight. He also taught us that when you get to the point in your relationship where your spouse is willing to give notes on the sandwich order, you can take those notes and turn them into the longest running on-screen joke you have ever heard of. Like, how great was that? (laughs) As always, we want to keep every episode of Open Pike Night free to everyone. And to make that possible, please head over to patreon.com slash openpike or openpike.com and check out our support page. Our supporters there have already had a chance to see a little greeting video from tonight's recording session with Davey and a little breakdown of the episode after this has dropped. And maybe a little Easter egg, or should we say Gorn egg? Oh yeah, there is some fantastic video of, uh, well, you'll just have to subscribe to Patreon. Take a look. Uh, It's one of the many benefits you two can have when you become a patron for as little as $2 a month. Jesse, how else can our listeners help? Of course, we need your help to make every episode of Open Pike Night as great as it is. We need your questions asked, and the best way for you to submit those questions is to go to openpike.com slash join us. There, you can record your voicemail or leave us a message, and during the month of November, when you do that, you'll be entered into our hashtag, Where November Has Gone Before Sweepstakes. Before I finish this read, John, will this episode air in November? <laughs> oh, yeah, like two more days after. Yeah, you have just a couple days left to enter this contest. (laughs) While you're there, you can leave a voicemail or a message and be entered into our hashtag where November has gone before contest to win a Hallmark keepsake Strange New Worlds Enterprise light up ornament. And you can probably still follow the show on Twitter at Open Pike. I don't (laughs) want to make that call, but you probably can do that. So give it a shot. And Cam, where can people find more of you? Yeah, if you want to find more of me, you can listen to uh, mine and John's other podcast, Green Shirt, A Newbie's Trek Through the Next Generation, where I am the titular green shirt. Apparently, I've got something about four lights to look forward to and a spooky Gates McFadden episode. And there was something else, I think, maybe a crazy Riker. I don't know. Apparently, the last two seasons of TNG have a lot in store for me. So I'm looking forward to it. Come join us there. It's a good time. Uh, Also, Twitter at GreenShirt87 is where you can find us. If the Twitter boat sinks, I don't know where we're going we're on facebook you can find us there too and jesse where can folks find more of you to that note if the twitter boat does in fact sink you can find this show at open pike same handle on instagram or again just openpike.com everything will be there all the time 
If for whatever reason you need more of me in your life, you can stay in the podcasting app that you are currently in and go look up Sudden But Inevitable, which is the show where I turn longtime friends into brand new fans of the shows I feel they probably should have seen by now. We started with Firefly, we jumped to Cowboy Bebop, there's all kinds of movies in there, Highlander, Donnie Darko. If you like hearing people experience things for the first time and other people forcing them to like those things, then Sudden But Inevitable is for you. And I can be found on Twitter at John T. Bolds if Twitter's still around. If not, that's it. I'm actually an AI generated by Twitter and everybody who ran me has been fired. <laughs> it's been a long night and the Open Pike Night crew has to uh, figure out some technical difficulties. There are some blinking lights going on, and I'm hearing a clicking noise. I'm not sure what's going on, you guys, but should we should be probably fine. go uh, wander around the hallways and back and check it out. We'll, I'll go we'll be sure up into the Jeffrey's tube and check that uh, that ventilation. Uh, I actually just got promoted. Do you guys want me to lead this little oh, excursion? Yeah. Okay. That, that sounds good. I, I haven't cool. seen be you before, but I'm sure we'll all be fine. I've got a great backstory. Excellent, excellent. I'm going to head to uh, sick bay and check, make sure everything's okay there. Be sure to clean up after yourselves on the way out. Don't forget to tip your servers. You can go anywhere you want, but you can't stay here. Mm-hmm.